so you'll land on it. We will read this, this whole little letter, written by a servant of Jesus Christ, Jude, together. And we read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the ways of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we begin to unpack this letter that you wrote to your church, may it bring a fresh truth and teaching to us today as your church. You have promised to keep us. May we walk faithfully in the faith. Guide Pastor Tobe as he teaches us from your word. Empower him with your spirit. Open our eyes to see and ears to hear that we would have sensitive hearts to your word, that we'd respond in repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest danger for Gray Road Baptist Church? What is our greatest threat? Is it government oppression? It's been more than once that I've talked with other pastors seeking to talk about the question, what are you going to do if and when the government begins to start levying property taxes on churches? I mean, it would be a huge financial hit. Is that our greatest threat? Is that our greatest danger? Is it physical violence? I mean, shootings in public places fill the news, including shootings at churches. It has sparked a whole wave of conferences and seminars aimed at preparing people in congregations for the worst of situations. Now, certainly, oppression and persecution take place for believers. Paul told Timothy that all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter told those suffering under persecution, don't, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus says the world will hate his followers because it first hated him. And yet Jesus also says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So yes, oppression and persecution present certain types of danger, but they won't ultimately succeed. So then back to the question, what is Gray Road's greatest threat? What is the greatest danger for us this morning? What will destroy us? What will eat away at us until we are anemic? What will take our strength, our health, our vitality, our effectiveness, our witness in this community, our joy, our hope? What will put out the light of Christ in this place? False teaching. Now, does that sound surprising to you? That someone would stand before a group like this and say the greatest threat to the local church is false teaching? It sounds surprising, doesn't it? I mean, some of you are concealing and carrying everywhere you go, and I'm standing here telling you words are the greatest danger. I mean, even Jesus said, don't, don't fear those who will 
kill the body and can't touch your soul. If you go home and you were to read all of the letters in the New Testament, you would find that one theme surfaces over and over and over and over. The balance of the New Testament letters do not speak to the avoidance of oppression or the avoidance of persecution because those things are impossible to avoid. It is a clarion call to avoid perverting the truth. So that Paul tells, uh, has Timothy remain in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1.3, so that he can make sure sound doctrine stays intact. Why? Because the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We see in the New Testament the priority and the necessity of sound doctrine. It must inform what we preach and it must shape how we live our lives. So when it comes to church leadership, when it comes to those who are elders, the elders of a church must hold to sound doctrine. So Paul tells Titus, who's putting things in order on the island of Crete, that these prospective elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, speaking of elders, if I could take like a two-minute sidebar just on elders for just a minute. We're in the midst of affirming as a congregation as an elder. Now, historically, you should know that when we have sent men to the field, historically, the precedent has been that they would be ordained in gospel ministry. But even without this impending departure, you should know that the elders would put forward as a candidate for elder. Now, it's true, as you look at the, the guys who are not on staff, right? You look at the guys who are not on staff and who are elders. They have been here for literally decades, faithfully serving the Lord, right? And certainly elders must not be new Christians. But I will tell you this, that if we are going to perpetuate godly leadership in this congregation, we cannot wait until someone has been here for decades before we begin to think, oh, they might be an elder, some of you men, in God's goodness, some of you men sitting here right now, the Lord will raise up to be elders. Some people, some men are getting notice this week that they have to move to the south side of Indianapolis for their jobs. And in the time to come, in some period of time unknown to us, they would, might become elders here. Some of our future elders, yes, are coloring outside the lines in the preschool wing right now. Those of you who have children back there, does that make you tremble just a little bit? It shouldn't. What it should cause us to do is take seriously the mandate to raise our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because it's those children that under God will, Lord willing, raise up to be elders. Now, I know the timeline, sorry, I know the timeline is, seems short, but this is the same four weeks that we take with every other candidate. And actually, the elders talked about this a couple of years ago, that we are not going to 
send to the field to serve someone we would not set apart as elder in our congregation. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, he's not fit for us, so let's ship him off to another country. That doesn't make any sense. And without the departure, maybe not at this moment because the departure is impending, but we've gone through the same long process with Tim that we've gone through with everybody else. The big issue is not whether you, you know, rubber stamp the deal or not. We don't want you to rubber stamp it. What we want you to do is think, is Tim qualified to be an elder? His character, doctrine, if you've been in classes with him, ability to teach. If so, affirm. If not, raise the concerns. Because it is better for Tim. It is better for his family. It is better for the church. It is better for uh, wherever they would go on mission. And it is better for the mission of taking the gospel to the nations. That if he is not qualified, we know it now and not later. You understand? That's why we must do this. And it's why we must do it now. So, pray. Consider. Respond. All right? Back on track because Jude beckons. Jude beckons for our attention. Sound doctrine in the church matters. So Paul warns about false teaching all over the place. Peter's second letter focuses on false teacher and their immorality. And Jude's letter takes its cue from 2 Peter, uses it as a launching pad, as it were, to write his letter and echo the call for the church to contend for the faith rather than to compromise. And today we begin a five-week journey through this little letter. In fact, I was talking with Tom Blackburn just this week. Uh, wonderful. You want to get Tom Blackburn riled up? Just start talking about the Bible. And that man's passionate. I mean, he's going to start talking to you. Give yourself 45 to 50 minutes. And he is there, man. He's got you. All right? And it's fantastic. I love talking with Tom Blackburn about the Bible. And uh, he just made this observation that was so wonderful. It's so helpful, isn't it, to think that under, under God, the Bible is so arranged that it finishes with a final warning in Jude and the assurance of final victory in Revelation. Both of which we need to know and understand as we walk and as we minister and as we teach. So this morning... We're just going to look at the opening of the letter. I mean, quite frankly, in a letter like this, you might just be tempted to blow right past the first two verses and dive head on into verse three, because that's where the getting gets good. But I'm telling you that there, there is truth in these first two verses that are going to help us. They're going to help ground us for the rest of the letter. So in the context of the whole letter, I think these two verses lead me to the conclusion that Christians must be grounded in the truth to contend for the faith. Not, the, the first two verses are not a systematic theology, you understand, but they contain truth. They teach truth that we must know, that we must understand, that we must hold on to if we are going to faithfully contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. What we must hold on to, Gray Road, what we must hold on to if we're going to faithfully contend for the faith here. The first thing we see, the first bit of truth to hang on to in the midst of contending for the faith is submission. Submission. All right. The letter begins with a name that doesn't actually ring with much familiarity unless you're, you know, in and around the 
Cienciola is a nolting, right? I mean, it begins with Jude. So uh, we know that name with them, but we don't often, it's not one of these names that comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament. It can also be Judas or Judah, depending on uh, who it is that's saying it and all these things. Um, We don't actually know much about him except to say that this is one of Jesus' half-brothers. In Mark chapter 6, we read this as, as the crowd is questioning Jesus. They say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas? That's him. And Simon. So this brother James that he is talking about is the one who wrote James that we have in the New Testament. He's also a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, while Jesus was on earth, Jude did not follow him. I mean, John 7 says even his brothers did not believe. He echoed the family call in Mark 3 when they said he is out of his mind. And yet... Things changed after the resurrection. When the apostles are com- and, and the other disciples are coming together to pray and await the coming of the Spirit, his brothers are with them. Acts 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And his brothers. Now, what's interesting here is how Jude identifies himself. He's the brother of James, but he doesn't say he's the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say he's the brother of the Lord. He doesn't say he's the brother of the risen Christ. In today's world, this seems like a mistake. You drop every name that you possibly can to gain an audience. I mean, I once shook Will Smith's hand in the Hard Rock Cafe in New York City. You see how that works? I mean, I just say that. I don't know what happened just now, but you say that in some circles. And well, now they're Pete. What? Whoa, what happened? Talk to me. I just told you I shook his hand. That was literally it. That was the whole thing. He was walking by so fast. I kind of had to grab his hand to shake it. And then he kept walking. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if he was telling his entourage, watch for that guy. Um, but he doesn't say he's the brother of Jesus. What does he say? He says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. In Jude's mind, his relationship to Jesus is not primarily one of brother to brother. It is one of servant to master. And the word servant here is a strong one. It is doulos. It means slave. It means it is one whose livelihood and purpose is determined by the master. Now, in, in households all over the place today, older children, the older siblings, are bossing the younger siblings around, right? And the younger siblings, well, not in your house, Stephen, but in everybody else's house, this is happening And not yours either, Chad. But in my house, sometimes the older children will boss around, right? And that happens in households. And the younger children don't like it. Don't like it at all. Can't stand the idea of being bossed around. No boy wants to grow up being the slave of the brother he shared a bunk bed with. But here Jude, who grew up side by side with Jesus substitutes his name 
in place of God's name. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish mind, the prophets came and they talked about being a servant of the Lord, a servant of God. And here, Jude says he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he identifies his blood brother as his sovereign king. Jude makes it clear that he is writing as a man in submission to Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Because the false teachers that Jude is seeking to expose explicitly do not submit to Jesus. So, verse 4. Certain people have crept in. What does it say at the end? They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What does it say in verse 8? These people rely on their dreams and they reject authority. They are living by their own rules. They're making up their own morality. They're teaching their own version of truth. They're denying Jesus' lordship. They're denying Jesus as master. They are rejecting authority. And the implicit reality here is that Jude is calling on us to reject those who reject such authority. That is the call of Jude. We reject those who reject the authority of Jesus. That we are actually to be like Jude and not like the false teachers. We are to be a servant of Jesus Christ. He is to be Lord. This is what it means to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily. It is for him to be Lord. God has raised him from the dead, making him both Christ and Lord, Peter says, on the day of Pentecost. That we are to live in submission to the truth. Now, in today's Christian culture, and if you turn on the radio on the way home today, at some point during this afternoon's broadcast on some radio station somewhere, you will hear someone talking about who you are in Christ, all right? And they will so, mag I mean, that we have a, we have an identity in Christ fad sweeping the nation that you can't really live for Jesus unless you know who you are in Christ, in truth, what we usually hear as these identity in Christ statements is mostly a Christianized self-esteem booster. And it is full of I am statements. And let me tell you one way that I come to that conclusion. It's by Jude 1. When you hear people talk about who they are in Christ, they will say, I am a child of the King. I am an overcomer. Greater is He that is in me. Than he who is in the world. No weapon formed against me will prosper. You know what nobody's saying on the radio? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about identity? That's fine. Let's talk about all the identity. Nobody's saying my purpose doesn't come from me. It only comes from Jesus. Nobody's saying my livelihood doesn't come from me. It only comes from Jesus. My direction in life doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. My moral decisions don't come from me. They come from Jesus. My authority is not my own. It's the, my authority is Jesus' authority over me. My orders come from my master and I obey. That's who we are. 
more than anything else. That's the way the Apostle Paul claimed his identity. A servant. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. And ourselves as your servants too. Christians are those who live, whose lives are marked by submission. First and foremost, submission to God, to Jesus Christ, to His Word. And the reason why this is important is because nobody is going to contend for this faith who first rejects it. Nobody's going to stand for this Lord Jesus Christ who first belittles His Lordship in their own lives. That is not what faithfulness will look like. So just as Jude submits to Jesus and contends for the faith by writing this letter, this writing this letter is Jude contending for the faith. Him calling us to contend for the faith is Jude contending for the faith. So Christians must submit to Jesus in order to contend for the faith today. Otherwise, what faith are you contending for? Isn't that true? What faith are you contending for if you don't submit to this faith? You just make up your own faith and contend for that? There's plenty of that going around today. But the call of the Bible is that this is the faith. Contend for this faith. Contend for the faith. Hold on to the faith. Fight the good fight of faith. We need submission. If we're going to contend for the faith, we need to be a people in submission to Jesus. The second thing we need is security. And actually, he just tells us that. Moving on, standard practice in ancient letters. You start, go from the writer to the recipient. Who is he writing to? To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, Jude is writing to Christians. This is not an open letter on his blog for anyone who, you know, happens to think it's for them. This is for Christians. But he doesn't use a kind of normal New Testament word for Christians that is most often used. You know, we're often here to the saints who are at, right? To the saints or to the church or to the churches. And what he says is he identifies Christians as those who are called, beloved, and kept. Now, the main identifier here is called. But what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is it's not like an invitation to a party. And if you're available, it's not like the invitation to our open house. All right. Susan and I are having an open house in a couple of weeks. You're all invited, whether you're members or not. The times are somewhere out there. It's Friday the 14th and Saturday the 15th. Uh, we may even let you in if you don't come at one of those designated times. But we want to have an open house to be able to have you into our home and just uh, fellowship together and, and, and all of that. This kind of calling is not like that little card that had the information about the open house on it. I mean, that's a kind of call. It's just an invitation. And if you're available, come. That's not what called means here. This is the call of a boss calling the employee into his office. This is the call of the school principal to the student who needs to come right away. This is the call of the American government decades ago to increase the military through the draft. This is a king calling for his subject to come. Now, 
That sounds like it could be awful, but there's something different and wonderful and glorious about this call. What theologians deem the effectual call of God. In those other kinds of calls, you know, can you, can you imagine, right, the student who's going to the principal's office? <sighs> right? I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Same with the employee having to go to the boss. Same with some of, you know, some men who were drafted. That was how they went, right? Same with even a subject in a kingdom going to see the king. The wonderful and glorious thing about this call is that God transforms us so that we want nothing more but to come. We want it. Well, now, how does that work? For example, the gospel is proclaimed. It's over a cup of coffee. It's in a service like this, and a person hears about sin and its consequences, which are eternal punishment in hell. We hear of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus who lived in our place, fulfilling God's requirement of perfect righteousness. Jesus who died in our place, bearing our sin and absorbing the wrath of God in our place on the cross. We hear the call to repent and believe in Jesus. Okay? So far so good? You with me? As a human being's voice is coming into our ears, the Holy Spirit of God secretly and inwardly calls to us. He cranks up the volume on the gospel's truth. He sharpens the scalpel of his words and he cuts out that old, cold dead heart, and he puts in a new heart that beats with eternal life, and the lights come on, and we repent, and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's awesome. You know why that's so great? Because if it was up to you and me, it would never happen. We should be thankful for the effectual call of God. This is why you pray for people who don't know Jesus. You don't pray for them to get smarter. You don't pray for them to get more moral. You pray that God will invade their universe with his truth and he will pierce their heart to the core and he will open up their eyes and he will change them and he will bring them to himself. That's what you pray Because by good works, no one will be justified. I can't open my eyes enough. There is no open. Because I can't, I can't do this because I'm dead in sin. I can't even do that. I can't open my own eyes. I can't give myself a new heart. That's why we plead with God to do it. And if you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you hear that, if you hear what Jesus has done for you in living in your place and dying in your place and being raised on the third day and that you must repent and you must believe and you hear that and in you just, yes, then come to him. Turn to him in faith. Don't, 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 don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation for all who would believe. It's a glorious call because to be called means that we are loved and kept. 
Those two verbs modify the first one. Now, Jude loves triplets. If you just went through the whole letter and you just marked everything that came in threes, it happens several times. But this is not a three in the exact equal sense. This is the one with the other two supporting it. We are called because we are loved and we are kept. That's what it means to be called, to be loved by God in Christ, to be kept by God for Christ. Think of it in terms of adoption. God invites us into his family through the gospel. But as he does, his spirit comes to us in love. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He comes to us in love, the precious love of God in Jesus Christ dying for us. And he takes us out of the orphanage of our sin. And he says, you will not be there anymore. You will be loved now. You are my beloved now. And you will be kept. There's no going anywhere. This adoption is permanent. It is final. It is eternal. That's what it means to be called. Now, we're not passive in all of this, lest we get confused. Verse 21, did you hear it as we went along? It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How can we do that? Only because we know we're kept. Only because we are kept. That's the only way we can do it. What does this have to do with contending for the faith, you might ask? Everything. Not only to know these things, but as we contend for the faith, we will be mocked and ridiculed and dismissed and marginalized and oppressed and opposed and persecuted. But no matter how fierce our enemy, no matter how battle-worn we are, even if it seems like we're losing our grip, we can rest and be rejuvenated and be renewed and be re-energized for the fight, knowing this, that God's grip on us is secure. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Paul says, that's right, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now fight. Contend. Resist false teaching. See how glorious that is? In the end, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from it. We're fighting from the ground that can never be overturned. They can't take the hill of Mount Calvary. One last thing. Submission. Security. Support. Support. Jude does what any ancient writer does. He wishes them well. And he does so with this phrase, may great mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you.
Now, mercy, uh, peace, uh, mercy and peace appear in other places. Love is nowhere else in a greeting in the New Testament. It's unusual also that he doesn't say grace. I mean, it's usually grace and mercy and peace or grace and peace. But it's mercy, peace, and love. Now, all of these things would be things which these people would have because they are Christians. They have mercy because of Christ. They have peace with God because of Christ. We just saw it. They are beloved of God in Christ. So what is Jude wanting for them? What is this blessing he, he is praying for them even? What he wants is not just some position. He wants them to have a daily experiential understanding of these things. He wants the mercy and peace and love that are theirs in Christ to be theirs in every day. To them to have an understanding of the mercy that they've been shown. Have, live in the peace of God that they have been given and experience it. And live in the love of God. In fact, they're to keep themselves in the love of God. He wants them to know these things. It would be odd for him to, to wish that Christians would have things they already have in Christ. That doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is he wants these things to be realities that affect every day of their lives. They need mercy. Why? Because they are called on to show mercy to those who doubt and those who are taken captive by the false teachers. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy twice in that one verse. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Jesus calls us, doesn't he, to be merciful. Even as your Father is merciful. Our call to be merciful is predicated upon the fact that we know we've been shown mercy. And so Jude prays that they would know that they've been shown mercy and that they have the mercy of God. They need peace. Why? Because the false teachers are stirring up all manner of trouble, turmoil, strife, division. Look at verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. In a circumstance like that, anxiety can ramp up. As division is happening, as grumblers are all over the place, and what they need is for the peace of God to guard them. Philippians 4, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what they need. As they go about contending for the faith. They need love. Why? Because these false teachers are doing nothing but setting the example of caring for yourself. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. These are feasts that are meant to be filled with love. And instead they're filled with self-centeredness. Knowing the love of God. Keeping themselves in it will equip them to keep loving in the midst of these loveless 
men, these loveless false teachers. Now look at this word, may, uh, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Okay? means over, you know, it's abounding. It's overflowing. There are only three places in a greeting in a New Testament letter that that word multiply happens. It's in 1 Peter, it's in 2 Peter, and it's in Jude. 1 Peter, he is writing to those who are scattered and suffering at the hands of persecutors. 2 Peter, he is writing for them to resist false teachers, and Jude is written to do the same. And so they don't need just a little dab. If you're going to go up against the world with a water pistol, you cannot just have a little dab of mercy and peace and love. May it be multiplied. May you swim in it. May its current carry you along in the river of contending for the faith. May it be multiplied to you. It's a prayer of blessing, a prayer for what they need as they contend for the truth, a prayer to guard them from becoming cynical and callous and compromised. And as we contend for the truth, we must pray for similar things. We need God's help. Not only to know the truth that we preach, but to experience it, to be strengthened by it. This is why on the first Sunday evening of the month, we come together to pray. Intentionally. This is why we're going to begin the year 2019 with 40 days of prayer as a congregation beginning on January 7th. Because to fail to pray is to be arrogant. Prayerlessness is arrogance. It is to deny in practice what we declare in our preaching, and that is that we are dependent on God for everything. Prayer is our declaration that we are dependent on Him. If we are going to contend for, for the truth, for the faith, we must be dependent on Him. We need Him every hour. We don't simply need to grow more clever in our arguments. We need to be more fervent in our praying. We need to be protected from the evil one. We need to be protected from deception. We need God's help to know how and when and what to speak. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. So we must call on Him. We must know our need for His blessing. The greatest threat to Gray Road Baptist Church, to any local church, is not government oppression, it's not physical persecution. I mean, it's not the man who's going to walk in here with a weapon in his hand and threats in his mouth. It's the man who's going to walk in here with a Bible in his hand and twisted truth in his mouth. That's what would destroy us. And if we're going to contend faithfully to be protected, we must live in submission knowing that we're secure, dependent on God's support. 
Christians must be grounded in this truth if we're to contend for the faith. I'm going to pray now that God will help us to live in such dependence. And then we're going to be dismissed and the benevolence offering that that Chad mentioned will be taken at the door if you want to contribute. But let's pray together and ask the Lord for his help. Our Father, the very reflex of our heart beating is because of your power sustaining us. The very breaths we breathe as we pray this prayer are given by you. We need you. We are thankful that we are called, loved, and kept because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, because you, by your grace, have saved us. We pray that we will be a people who lives in submission to you. That the truth we declare is only the truth we have received from you. That we would submit our teaching to you. That we would submit our conversations to you. That we would submit our encouragement of others under your authority. That we would submit our very lives, our moral choices, our work ethics, all of it to you. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, your Spirit testifies with our Spirit that we are children of God. And we pray that that testimony would be renewed even as we think about the fact that we are called and loved and kept. Thank you for saving us, for calling us when we would never answer, for calling us by coming and getting us. This in itself ought to make us more prayerful, Lord. We pray it would make us more prayerful for our lost family members, for our lost friends, for our lost co-workers, for this community that doesn't know Jesus. And we pray that your mercy will be known to us day by day, that we might show mercy to one another that the peace we have with you in the Lord Jesus Christ will be experienced as the peace of God which passes all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds. And that your love demonstrated in this that Christ died for our sins, that that love will burn anew in us, that we will treasure that love, that we will keep ourselves in it. And now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.